You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode of DNA ID is sponsored by GEDmatch, the free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, not to mention help catch the bad guys we talk about in every episode. Episode 51, Nadine Major It was 1980. On Friday, January 11th at 5.07 p.m., Sue Novinch called the Willoughby, Ohio police about a disturbance at her residence. She reported that she lived in Unit 201 of the Willow Grove Apartments, Building Number 9, located at 37519 Grove Avenue, and a man was banging on the doors and yelling that someone had been murdered. Willoughby Police Dispatcher Stafford radioed that available officers should respond to the apartment complex address on Grove Avenue. Patrolman Brian Delahanty, Albert Pugel, and Leslie Witten arrived simultaneously and entered the apartment building through the rear door. On the ground floor of the building, the officers immediately observed a distraught white male standing against the West Highway wall. The man breathlessly told the officers, quote, Somebody murdered my wife. That's my wife in there. He identified himself as Mark Major. He said that his wife Nadine was in their apartment. He gestured toward the open door of apartment 101. Officers Delahanty and Pugil proceeded to the open doorway. They both gazed down at the clothed body lying face up on the floor. It was a woman, and she had a large, brown-handled knife sticking out of her chest. She also had multiple stab wounds and slashes to her face. Blood was everywhere. And when touched, the victim's body was cool. She'd been dead for a while. The officers stepped out of the doorway. Other than to quickly verify the victim was deceased, no one entered the apartment. They recognized right away that this was a crime scene and evidence needed to be preserved. It was going to be a long night for the investigators. They called for backup and the investigation commenced. Patrolman Pugil left and returned to the station to pick up camera equipment to document the scene. Patrolman Delahanty was stationed at the front door of the apartment to ensure that the scene was not compromised by any unauthorized personnel entering. Fire department personnel arrived and Fireman William Coleman maintained a meticulous timeline of the initial crime scene investigation that I found very informative. Detective Izell arrived at 5.09 p.m. He happened to be in the area as he was leaving a grand jury proceeding. He was shown the body on the floor, and then he stepped outside to talk to Mark Major, who had been placed in a patrol car. Mark told him something that would give anyone chills. He had gotten home from work around 5 o'clock. The apartment door was closed. 
He inserted his key into the lock to open the door, but he couldn't be certain that it was locked. He had used his key out of habit. And as the door swung open, he found Nadine dead on the floor, face up with the knife still in her chest. But that wasn't the chilling part, as traumatic as it was. Nadine and Mark's eight-month-old son Daniel was in his playpen eight feet away from Nadine's body, crying. Mark had scooped him up and ran into the hallway for help, eventually handing Daniel off to a neighbor lady while he himself was placed in the squad car. As Mark was talking to Detective Izell, Willoughby Police Chief Crozier summoned Detectives Sherwood and Young to the apartment building. Detective Lieutenant Clifford Collins arrived soon thereafter. Detectives started taking photographs at the entranceway to the victim's apartment. Then, Lake County Crime Lab personnel, including Rick Kent and Carol Hunter, arrived at 6.10. At 6.11, Patrolman Delahanty released the scene to the homicide detectives and lab techs. Two assistant prosecutors from the Lake County Prosecutor's Office arrived, including Rick Perez, the police prosecutor. Forensic techs Kent and Hunter set about photographing the scene inside the apartment. It was all hands on deck. As we heard, when police arrived, Mark Major was escorted out of the building and placed in a patrol car. He spoke to Detective Izell, and then Patrolman Witten drove him to the police station for more in-depth questioning. Nadine was found in the northwest corner of the apartment on the floor of the small dining area adjacent to the kitchen. She was lying on her back with her head tilting left, leaning against the baseboard heater in the corner of the wall. Crime lab tech Rick Kent confirmed that she was cold to the touch and had been dead for quite some time. The coroner was summoned by phone at 5.20 p.m. Dr. Wachter arrived at 6.49. He measured Nadine's body temperature at 94.28 degrees Fahrenheit. Given that reading at 7.22 p.m., it was estimated she had died anywhere between 10.40 a.m. and 2.50 p.m. At 9.28 p.m., the body was removed by the Willoughby Ambulance Squad to the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office in Cleveland for autopsy. Officer Delahanty accompanied the body in the ambulance for chain-of-custody purposes. At the scene, the responding officers, even viewing Nadine just from the doorway, had noted evidence signs that the victim had been struck, sustaining repeated blows to the face and torso. Of course, they could also see that her face had been slashed and she had been stabbed a number of times. Detective Izell's notes say, quote, On her face were a number of slash-type cuts. Along the right side of the nose, from the bridge to the jaw, and the upper lip was cut. And there were several cuts noted around the eyes, also on the right side of the cheek. End quote. The blunt language of his report doesn't really drive home the level of violence Nadine sustained. Detective Gabriel Slay of the Willoughby PD, who solved this case, told me that it was the most brutal crime scene he has ever seen. It literally resembled something out of a horror movie. The pathologist was Dr. Ross Zumwalt. Detective Izell and Lieutenant Collins observed the autopsy procedure. Nadine was recorded as a white female, 5 foot 2 inches, 110 pounds, with brown eyes and brown hair. She was wearing a cream short-sleeved top, blue polyester slacks, and blue vinyl clogs. A large butcher knife stuck out of her chest buried to the hilt. With effort, Dr. Zumwalt pulled out the knife and removed Nadine's clothing, which allowed the pathologist to see the extent of her sharp force injuries. Nadine had 13 stab wounds in her back. She had four stab wounds to the upper chest area. There were two stab wounds in her neck. There were four stab wounds in her left arm. 
As you heard, there were slash and stab wounds all over her face. Here is a quote from the police report. There were several other cuts made on the body that were either defense wounds or stab wounds, end quote. All in all, Nadine had been stabbed or cut 44 times. The knife had cut right through Nadine's blood-stained white blouse. Puncture wounds gaped in the fabric dotting the front of the casual chemise. Some hair was found on Nadine's body that appeared to be animal hair. Detectives' notes observed that the majors had no pets. It turned out that these hairs were transferred from a fireman from a firehouse dog. A rape kit was performed on Nadine, which was standard protocol even though she had been found fully dressed. No evidence of sexual assault was detected. All evidence collected from the victim, which consisted of the knife and her clothing and some hairs and fibers, was handed over to Detective Izell to be taken to the Lake County Crime Lab. Okay, let's talk about who our victim was. Nadine Cohen Major was born on October 4, 1954, in Cairo, Egypt. Her father, Isaac Cohen, was a French national who was also born in Egypt. He married Nadine's mother, Annette Masuda, an Italian woman also born in Egypt. Isaac and Annette raised their family in the Jewish faith. Nadine had two brothers named Ben and Abe and two sisters named Rachel and Vivian. The family lived in France after leaving Egypt and then moved to the U.S., first to New York, then eventually settling in the Cleveland area. Nadine graduated from Cleveland Heights High School in 1973. After high school, she worked for several years at a local bank before meeting Mark Major, a bank customer. They dated for three years and then married on May 7, 1977. When Nadine became pregnant with Daniel, she left the bank and embraced being a stay-at-home mom. Mark Major spoke at length with detectives who were anxious to get an understanding of who Nadine was. Mark told the detectives about meeting Nadine at the bank and their courtship and marriage. They had originally lived in Cleveland Heights, but had moved to Willoughby approximately one year earlier because they wanted a safer environment for their family. Small-town Willoughby fit the bill, or so they thought. Mark said that 25-year-old Nadine was in excellent health, both physically and emotionally. She was happy being home with Daniel. She had been upset the night before because she found out her father had been fired from his job, but she generally was emotionally very stable and even-keeled. Mark said Nadine didn't take any medications, she didn't use drugs or narcotics of any kind, and she would smoke one or two cigarettes a month. Just as an aside, it does seem as though Nadine may have possibly been hiding a slightly more serious cigarette habit from her husband. One of Mark's friends told the detectives that Nadine had asked him on the sly to bring her over some cigarettes. Mark and Nadine's friends said Nadine came across as kind of quiet until she got to know someone. She liked people and got along with everybody. Her hobbies were needlepoint, walking, and dancing. She loved rock and roll and romantic movies. She wasn't a risk taker, but she liked roller coasters. She loved football, and she and Mark went to several Browns games together. She wasn't particularly religious, but she did observe the Jewish holidays with her family. Speaking of her family, Nadine was close with her parents and sisters and was particularly fond of her younger brother, Ben. The whole family had had a falling out over religious differences with Abe, and Nadine didn't really keep in touch with him. They hadn't spoken in two years. Detectives asked about Mark and Nadine's relationship. He said they had a good, loving marriage. There were no problems. They had a normal sex life. He said Nadine had never cheated on him. She lived for him and Daniel and took care of the apartment and did the bookkeeping for the family. After all, she had worked at a bank. 
Mark could think of only one issue in his and Nadine's life that was cause for concern. Nadine had been receiving unsettling phone calls from an unknown person. The calls started when they lived in Cleveland Heights and occurred several times a week. Then, when they moved to Willoughby, the calls continued. The caller would never say anything. The other suspicious part of these calls was that they only occurred when Mark was at work. They never once received one when Mark was at home. The majors contacted the police and the phone company several times, but they were told there was nothing anyone could do. It's unknown whether these were just random crank calls plaguing Nadine or something more ominous. After Nadine was killed, Mark went back to the apartment only once. The image of his wife lying dead on the floor with a knife sticking out of her chest and slash marks on her face was just too horrific. He sold his auto body business to two employees and went to work at body shops owned by others. He was now a single dad of a baby, and the amount of time and energy owning his own business required was simply out of the question. Today, we want to tell you about how you can get involved in solving some of these cases that you've been hearing about on our show. Many of you are probably familiar with GEDmatch. I mention it in pretty much every episode. It's a free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, even if you've tested using different companies. It's also one of the sites used by law enforcement to solve the Golden State Killer case in 2018, and since then has been involved in 500 or more other cases. It is also not used for just violent crimes like murders and sexual assault, but also for identifying John and Jane Doe's and exonerating innocent people who were put away for the wrong reasons. If you've already done a DNA test with a direct-to-consumer testing company like 23andMe, Ancestry, MyHeritage, or FamilyTreeDNA, it's easy to upload to GEDmatch and help law enforcement with genetic tips and leads. I'm going to walk you through it. First, go to the company website where you have had your DNA testing done and download your profile as a DNA data file. Next, go to GEDmatch and upload the file to GEDmatch for processing. Make sure to choose to opt in for law enforcement searches that cover violent crime and missing persons cases. If you want to focus on being helpful to finding identities for unidentified bodies, you can just opt out, which will exclude your profile from violent crime case searches. Within 24 hours of this upload, you'll have access to a suite of DNA tools, allowing you to delve deeper into your results. Compare your DNA to everyone on the site or to a specific person, or find matches that are related to two different people, plus much more. Some people think that law enforcement gets access to your raw DNA when you upload your profile. This is not true. Law enforcement does not get to see your raw DNA data when you consent to allow your data to be included in those types of searches. They have the same access as any other civilian user of GEDmatch. They can only see your name or GEDmatch alias if you've entered one, email address, and how much shared DNA there is between you and the unknown profile uploaded. GEDmatch is a highly secure site built with consumer security in mind, where users are in control of information they upload and can delete their data whenever they want. By joining the GEDmatch community, you can help see violent criminals brought to justice, missing people located, and unidentified bodies given a name. Join GEDmatch today. Make sure you use gedmatch.com slash DNAID. That's gedmatch.com slash DNAID. Okay, let's return to the crime scene investigation. The entire apartment was videoed with Nadine's body still lying in place. As I said, she was found in the northwest corner of the apartment on the floor of the small dining area adjacent to the kitchen. She was lying on her back with her head leaning against the corner of the wall. Blood was on the wall and floors and on the knife handle jutting from her chest. 
The blood appeared on an area of the white wall approximately three feet above the floor and about three feet to either side of the victim. A large dent in the wall indicated what might have happened. Just above Nadine's head where it rested on the baseboard heater was an indentation in the plaster. This from Detective Izell's report, quote, The impression given was that the victim fell or was thrown into the corner, slid downward, possibly from a sitting position to the reclining position in which she was found. Cloth impressions on the wall and blood gave evidence of this. Also noted on the wall, above and to the right of the body were two indentations from a knife blade. Several blood spots were located on the wall about four feet to the left of the body, indicating a direction away from the body, end quote. And this part drives home the absolute terror Nadine must have felt as she was slashed and stabbed by her attacker. Blood was also on the telephone, hanging on the dining area wall near her body. Spots of blood were on the twisty phone cord, but, quote, later examination of the phone revealed blood in the area of the mouthpiece and buttons. Persons at the lab feel that the buttons 2, 5, and 7 may have been depressed as blood was found around these numbers, end quote. Someone with blood on them had tried to use the phone. Now, we don't know that it was Nadine trying to call for help. Back in those days, there was no 911. Someone needing help would have had to know the number for the police station. It's possible Nadine made it to the phone and frantically tried to dial, but was stopped by her killer. It's possible the killer himself made a call. More on that possibility later. But there was a third possibility. Mark Major had left the bloody prints on the phone digits. He told the investigators that he instinctively tried to pull the knife out of Nadine's chest, but he was unable to. He got blood on his hands. And then he tried to call for help, but couldn't get the phone to work. Detective Slay thinks it's possible that Mark, under extreme stress with Nadine slashed to bits and Daniel crying and a killer on the loose, probably misdialed or could not recall the police department number. There were some other intriguing clues at the scene. Crime lab techs noted bloody shoe prints on a few tiles on the kitchen floor. Detective Izell's notes read, quote, These impressions, only partial prints, showed a series of small dots, as though the shoe were a jogging or racquetball-type shoe. End quote. The shoes were believed to be a size 13 athletic shoe, which were much less common for everyday wear than they are today. Detective Izell also noted a spot of blood on the second tile from the hall carpeting into the kitchen. Despite all this blood, the apartment was in remarkably pristine condition. Almost all the furniture was in place and didn't appear in disarray, even in the dining area around where Nadine lay. One of the dining chairs did have a spot of blood on it, but that was it. The exception to this was Daniel's high chair, lying on its back under the wall telephone. The chair had traces of blood on the right side of the plastic food tray. Friday's Cleveland Plain Dealer lay spread open on the kitchen table, a ballpoint pen on top. It lay open to the job listings. A small piece of paper that had been torn out of the bottom section of page 2D was found in a trash can. CSIs collected the paper and the scrap. The TV was on channel 3 with the volume on low. The only light on in the apartment was the dining room light, which is odd because the shades in both bedrooms and the drapes in the living room and the dining room were all drawn closed. Either Nadine had been sitting there in the near dark, perhaps while baby Daniel took a nap, or the killer had closed all the shades so as to avoid prying eyes peering in. Nadine's purse lay on the couch, which is where Mark Major said it often rested. It didn't appear to have been disturbed at all. 
It contained her social security card, driver's license, keys, and a business card from Major's Auto Body, her husband's business. Nothing appeared to have been stolen from anywhere in the apartment. Investigators noticed that the front door lock had not been pried or jimmied in any way, and an interior chain lock on the inside of the apartment door was intact and hadn't been damaged. That indicated to police that the chain had not been in place. All windows in the apartment were locked and were intact and showed no signs of tampering or pry marks. Investigators did observe a small amount of blood on the outside of the door near the handle. It was likely either marks from when he ran into the hallway holding Daniel, or it was left there by the killer as he fled the scene. Investigators took special note of of the lack of forced entry, and Nadine's father Isaac told investigators his daughter would never open the door without asking the person to identify himself, although some others would tell a different story. Further, there wasn't much evidence of a struggle. Nadine hadn't been bound or gagged. The baby was eight feet away in his playpen. Surely she would not have let someone she didn't know into the apartment. All of this added up to, as the police report stated, quote, At this time, we felt it was a very great possibility that Nadine knew the party who committed this crime. End quote. Because Mark was the husband, almost always regarded as suspect number one by the police in a case like this, at least initially, that very evening, some of the investigators went over to Mark's body shop, Majors. They were looking for any evidence relating to the crime. I dare say they probably expected to find his bloody clothes hidden in the shop somewhere. But they found nothing and returned to the apartment empty-handed. The areas around where the assault on Nadine took place were dusted for prints, but nothing of value was found. The same was true for the knife handle. There were no discernible prints given the amount of slippery blood on the hilt. And Mark admitted that he had tried to pull the knife out of his wife's chest, no doubt messing up any prints that might have been there. Detective Izell borrowed the crime lab vacuum and hoovered the area of the attack in the apartment, and Lake County Crime Lab personnel set about removing items from the apartment to be preserved in evidence. They checked all the rubbish bins in the apartment. They took up and removed the bloody shoe print floor tiles from the kitchen. They took down and bagged the green wall telephone. And they collected a kitchen drawer, complete with the utensils and silverware inside. This drawer had been found open about two inches, and some traces of blood were found inside as well as on the sink board above the drawer. The carving knife found in Nadine's chest belonged to the majors and had been kept in that drawer. The question was, of course, if the killer had come to the apartment to kill Nadine, didn't he bring his own weapon? Why did he need a knife from the kitchen? Detectives believe they found the answer to this question when they discovered an object lying on the green carpeted floor next to the body. It was a horseshoe-shaped piece of metal. The investigative report states, quote, It appeared to have been broken from what may have been the blade of a pocket knife. It was 5 sixteenths of an inch wide by 9 thirty-seconds of an inch in length, with a diameter of 3 thirty-seconds at the hole. The piece is broken through this hole. This may be the portion of the blade that swivels on the rivet, end quote. So the killer had his own folding knife, and some of the stab wounds in Nadine's back appeared to have been made from a smaller blade, such as a pocket knife. Detective Slay believes that the killer's own knife snapped as he viciously stabbed Nadine, and he had to grab another one from the kitchen. With blood on his hands, he rifled the drawers and found the one with the large butcher knife in it and used that to finish Nadine off. All of this begs the question, wouldn't there have been a lot of noise? Wouldn't Nadine have been screaming and Daniel crying? 
Remember, though, that the dent in the wall told the investigators that Nadine had almost certainly been slammed onto the floor, hitting her head on the wall. Perhaps she was knocked unconscious and came to and tried to defend herself as she was being stabbed. This is all speculation. We really have no idea exactly how this whole thing went down. We do know that the killer took with him the remnants of his broken knife, leaving the one small piece behind. And, very oddly, he also took with him two more items from the kitchen drawer, a smaller knife and a meat fork that have never been accounted for. Detective Sherwood started a ground search of the area surrounding the apartment building and in the parking lot, checking for footprints and physical evidence, tire tracks, anything left behind by the killer. A distinct shoe print was found on the ground outside the rear door of building number 9. It appeared to match the print found in blood on the major's kitchen floor, and may have been made as the killer exited the building. A similar shoe print was found near the rear walk-through door to building number 12. Again, the shoe print was on the ground to the left of the door as the person would exit the building. And a final shoe print was found to the rear of building 13 to the right of the walk-through door as a person would exit the building. This made it appear as though the killer might have been a resident of the apartment complex and had access to a number of the buildings. Indeed, further digging by detectives found a fifth-grade boy who lived in the Grove Avenue apartments who wore shoes that they believed had made the prints found outside the buildings 9, 12, and 13. Investigators sought to question this boy who delivered newspapers to the complex, but his parents would not allow it. Detective Young set about searching Nadine's vehicle parked in the lot. Nothing of evidentiary value was located. Lieutenant Collins requested a check of the major's phone number to check out calls to and from the apartment. Chief Crozier gathered papers from the rear bedroom pertaining to the couple's financial matters and major's auto body and entered them into evidence as well. By midnight, the apartment was closed for the night, secured with a padlock to preserve the scene. Of course, police were immediately suspicious of Nadine's husband, Mark Major. They were under the impression that the killer was someone Nadine knew and allowed into the apartment. And it's always the husband, right? Mark was sat down for an interview with police that very evening. He was read his constitutional rights and they proceeded. Mark told Lieutenant Jack Myers and Detective William Young that he was 28 years old and he owned Major's Auto Body Shop at 357th Street in Eastlake. He said he'd been at work all day since 7.30 a.m. He'd gone home for lunch between 12 and 12.15 and returned to work around 1 o'clock. His wife had called around 1.20 p.m. to let him know that Bob Murphy had called about a repair job. Mark said he went about his usual afternoon, interacting with body shop customers and employees, but he had called his wife at the apartment around 4.45 p.m. to ask her to write a check for superior auto parts. He was surprised when he received no answer to his phone call. After trying a few more times, he drove home and found the entrance door to his apartment closed, and when he opened it, he saw Nadine lying on the floor. Mark admitted that he tried to pull the knife out of her chest, but couldn't. He picked up Daniel and then tried to call the police by dialing the operator, but for some reason was unable to make a connection. He didn't know why the phone didn't work, but he noted that the phone hanging on the dining room wall had blood on it. He went out in the hallway and frantically started screaming and banging on doors, but no one answered. As he climbed the stairs to the second floor, he ran into Mrs. Novinch on the stairs, and he told her to call the police. His wife had been murdered. Detectives' notes say that, quote, 
During this interview, Major did admit that he and his wife had argued on several occasions and that their relationship had been strained by him working many hours at his body shop. He also states that on more than one occasion, his wife had talked about divorce, end quote. At least one neighbor, Mrs. Duncan, had told the investigators that she had heard arguing from the major's apartment in the past, and several of the major's friends said they often argued about money. Police talked to this Bob Murphy, the man whom Mark had said Nadine told him had called her at home. Bob told the investigators that he had indeed called the major's home and spoken to Nadine around 1.25, he guessed. She sounded completely normal and told him to call her husband at the body shop. He did so around 3.50 p.m. and was told by an employee of the body shop that Mark had stepped out. This did match up with what Mark had told detectives, which is that he left the shop in the mid-afternoon and went to Lycan Oldsmobile and Mentor Ford for auto parts. On the way back to the shop, he stopped for donuts at Mentor Avenue and Route 306. He arrived back at the body shop at approximately 4 o'clock. He then called his wife at 4.45, and that's when he started to become concerned. Police were suspicious of this Bob guy since he admitted he had called and talked to Nadine and he knew her, and she'd been killed very soon thereafter. Police went to Bob's place of employment and learned that he didn't have a time card for Friday and came and went from work as he pleased. He did give them a complete list of his activities on the afternoon of the 11th, which accounted for his time, though. They also tried to track down his teenage son, who, they learned, was reportedly on leave from a mental institution the weekend of January 11, 1980. But they confirmed that the son had been in the hospital until Saturday morning. The investigators moved on. Detectives spoke to an employee of Mark's auto body business named Ernie Phillips. This is a quote from the police report. He related that he wasn't too shocked to hear what had occurred. He informed us that there were very heated arguments over the telephone between Mr. and Mrs. Major, end quote. Ernie did say he had never witnessed any physical abuse on the part of Mark toward Nadine. His impression of their arguments were that Nadine was upset because Mark spent too much time at work and wasn't paying enough attention to her and Daniel. Mark, in his second interview with detectives, sensed that they were side-eyeing him. His instincts were right. He was placed in a jail cell and held pending further investigation. His brothers Paul and Chuck came to visit with him. Eager to get the police off his back, Mark asked to take a polygraph and one was scheduled for January 13th. Mark also was permitted a visit with a priest at his request. This poor guy, right? His entire world is literally rocked by the brutal, horrific stabbing murder of his wife in front of their eight-month-old child. And instead of being permitted to mourn and process what had happened, he was thrown into a jail cell on no evidence other than that he was married to Nadine, he had a few gaps in his workday schedule, and he had argued with her in the past like every married couple. Mark's polygraph interview commenced at 10 a.m. on the 13th and wrapped up around 2.45 p.m. The polygraph examiner, Robert Heidinger, concluded it was his opinion that the subject was probably telling the truth. Here's a quote from Lieutenant Collins' report. This opinion is somewhat qualified because the subject's polygrams were difficult to read, probably because of his strong emotional condition over the nature of the crime and his lack of time to adjust to them. It's the opinion of the polygraph examiner that Mark Major had no information regarding the perpetrators of this crime or location of any evidence involved in this crime and that he is telling the truth to all questions and all statements made to police. End quote. 
Meanwhile, Detective Sherwood and Lieutenant Collins ran down Mark's alibi. They talked to the parts manager at the Oldsmobile dealer and the Ford dealer he said he went to on Friday afternoon. They interviewed the employees of Major's Auto Body about the afternoon of the 11th. Detectives' notes confirm that Mark Major's story all checked out. After the polygraph and the alibi, the police seemed to approach Mark quite differently, no longer as a suspect. They asked him if he knew of anybody who might have wanted to harm Nadine. He couldn't think of anyone. Then they asked him if he knew of anybody who wore tennis shoes. In a sign of the times, he said he only knew two people who wore tennis shoes who could have left the athletic shoe prints in the kitchen. One was Nadine's brother, Ben Cohen. The other was his buddy, Rick. He knew that Ben was supposed to stop by to pick up a suitcase to return to Miami University, but he didn't know if he'd actually been to the apartment on Friday. Upon checking, Mark confirmed that the suitcase was still in the closet. Detectives asked Mark a few questions about things in the apartment. A pair of drinking glasses found on the sink board in the kitchen had been there at lunchtime when he was home, he said. They had him look at the drawer they had taken from the kitchen that they believed the knife came from. He said they had received the knife found in Nadine's chest as part of a set for a wedding gift. Mark was the one who informed the investigators that there were two implements missing from the drawer, which were part of the set with the butcher knife. One was a carving knife with a thin serrated blade, and the second was a carving fork. Meanwhile, Nadine's father, Isaac Cohen, asked the WPD's permission to obtain some of her clothing from the apartment for her funeral. He had to deal with preparing his daughter for burial because Mark was busy being interrogated. Detectives asked Nadine's brothers to keep an eye out at the funeral for anybody suspicious or anybody acting strange. The funeral was scheduled for Monday at 2 o'clock. Afterwards, Isaac provided detectives with the guestbook from the funeral, and between him and his sons, they were able to account for everyone in attendance. A month after the murder, on February 15th, Mark was requested to take another polygraph. The reason being, according to detectives' notes, was that there was some deception in the first polygraph which they felt could have resulted from the extreme emotionality regarding the very recent crime. When the detectives asked Mark to take a second poly, he became very upset and felt he was being accused of the murder of his wife. This resulted in Mark obtaining an attorney named Robert Chernet, who called detectives and said that Mark would not be taking a second polygraph. Eventually, though, they agreed to cooperate, and Mark took the second polygraph on March 31st, which he passed with flying colors. Okay, let's talk about some witnesses. The complex mail carrier told investigators that on Friday the 11th, she had left the mail in the complex mailboxes between 1 and 1.15 p.m. The major's mail from that day had been found inside the apartment. So they knew that Nadine had been fine when she picked up the mail, but she'd been dead for some time when her husband found her at 5 o'clock. It was a approximately three-and-a-half-hour window of unknowns. Based on Nadine's body temperature when it was taken by the coroner, her time of death was closer to 3 o'clock than 5 o'clock. That left a very small window of about 90 minutes when things went down. Then there was another witness who was very important to the investigation. Back on the day of the murder, January 11th, at 5.22 p.m., an older woman appeared in the apartment building hallway where all the police officers were gathered. She said her name was Pauline Hamrick and she lived in apartment 304. And she had Nadine Major's baby in her apartment. She had collected the baby from Mark Major as he was led to the patrol car. 
Mrs. Hamrick also had some other information for detectives which she relayed when she was interviewed on January 14th by Detective Sherwood. She reported that on the day of the murder, she left her apartment between 1 o'clock and 1.30 to go downstairs and pick up her mail. She remembered the time because it was during an ad break in her favorite TV show. On the way back upstairs, she threw the junk mail into the incinerator and then glanced out the window facing the rear of the building. In the parking lot, she saw a bright yellow car backed into a parking space near the door. All she could see was the top and the hood of the car, but it appeared to be a fairly new intermediate-sized vehicle, very clean. It was a brilliant canary yellow with a vinyl top that was a lighter color with a cream stripe around the roof. The car had a V-shaped hood design. She remembered the car having an extra-large rear window, and it had something white in the back window that could have been a construction hard hat. The car stood out to her because she had never seen it before and never saw it since. Other neighbors, too, were certain that the car was not there at noon and was also not there after 3.30 p.m. It was only there during the exact time period that the murder was thought to have occurred. Police went to great lengths to try to figure out exactly what type of vehicle this was. Mrs. Hamrick said it had rounded edges and a vinyl top that was a shade lighter than the rest of the car. Detective Sherwood actually borrowed a yellow AMC Pacer from Alpert AMC and backed it into the same parking space behind building number 9. Then they had Mrs. Hamrick look out the window, just as she had that day. She said it was not this same type of car. The vehicle she saw had a longer hood in the shape of a V, and the side windows were different. On February 6th, Willoughby Detective William Young sat down with Mrs. Hamrick and showed her a book of paint samples of U.S.-made vehicles and asked her to pick out the color that most closely matched the color of the car she saw back on the day of the murder. Mrs. Hamrick selected Taxi Yellow, a color found on Chrysler cars. Much was made of this lead. Detectives staked out Nadine's funeral on Monday the 14th to see if the canary yellow vehicle showed up. Anyone who came across detectives' desks who drove any kind of yellow vehicle was thoroughly investigated. Even as late as 1982, two years after the murder, Lieutenant Collins spotted a Grand Prix in a tow lot matching Mrs. Hamrick's description. From above, as viewed by Mrs. Hamrick, the roof would appear V-shaped. It had a white hard hat in the rear window. They tracked down the guy who owned the car in 1980 and ruled him out. And even later, Sergeant Sherwood was on patrol and noticed a yellow car with a vinyl top, a long hood shaped like a V, and a high sloping rear window with a red hard hat in it. They tracked down this owner and ruled him out. But the yellow car always remained one of the most significant clues in the case. Police doggedly spoke with everyone they could find who knew the Majors. An accountant for Major's auto body, James Newland, was friends with Mark and spoke very highly of him. And he knew Nadine, too, because she'd been an employee of Cleveland Trust Bank in South Euclid, which did the body shop's banking. James knew of no problems between Mark and his wife that would indicate Mark's involvement in this crime. He suggested that they talk to Nadine's friend at the bank, Ruth Simpson, who had introduced him to the couple. So, detectives spoke with Nadine's three friends at Ameritrust Bank, all of whom had attended her funeral. They interviewed Frank D'Amico, the assistant vice president, Ruth Simpson, and Mary Petkosi, the branch supervisor. They all felt that Mark and Nadine were happily married, and they could not provide any helpful information about the murder. 
The trio, who knew Nadine pretty well, was unable to think of any ex-boyfriends or past bank customers who might have posed problems for Nadine. The same was true for Nadine's good friend Cindy Z, who could not think of anyone Nadine had issues with. She did say, though, that every time she was at Nadine's apartment and someone came to the door, Nadine opened it without questioning who it was. Then there was a temporarily intriguing lead involving Nadine's father, Isaac Cohen. Isaac was a certified gemologist and jewelry department manager at Higby's. He had been terminated from his job on January 9th after five diamonds went missing on his watch. Each manager was charged with making a daily diamond count to deter theft and control inventory. On December 26, 1979, Isaac's diamond count revealed five pieces missing. Two more went missing over the ensuing days. The total value of the missing diamonds was about $3,000 retail. Although Isaac was terminated in connection with this incident, his supervisors said they believed he was not responsible for the theft. Instead, they believed that the theft was perpetrated by a female employee, a Brenda T., who was working at the time of the thefts but had since disappeared. Isaac had previously reported that other items of jewelry had gone missing while Brenda was at work. Interestingly, her cousin Shirley worked at a different Higby store until January 21st of 1980. She disappeared after five bracelets worth approximately $2,000 disappeared from that store. Isaac's being fired does not seem to relate to the missing jewelry so much as his clashes with his boss and his being blamed for the theft that occurred while he was supervising. So how did this all relate to Nadine? Well, it didn't really. But jewelry theft is sexy stuff, and the investigators looked into Isaac, wondering if perhaps he was stealing and his daughter found out. Or maybe he had some connection to people in France or Egypt that could explain what happened to Nadine. Isaac didn't really have an alibi for the day of the murder, although he vehemently denied having anything to do with it. Detectives asked him about persons from his past in Egypt or France who might have a grudge against him or his family. Isaac stated he couldn't think of anyone. He admitted he had a small gambling habit and liked to bet on the horses, but never bet large amounts of money and didn't have any outstanding loans or debts. Detectives visited Nadine's brother Abe, who confirmed that he was ostracized from the family. Everyone agreed this was because he had entered into a mixed-faith marriage. He said he was on strike from his job as a pipefitter with Standard Oil, and he didn't have much of an alibi for the day of Nadine's death. He was at home that afternoon with his wife. Abe said he hadn't seen Nadine or had any contact with her for two years before her death, and her sisters were both out of the country at the time she was murdered. Detectives also interviewed Ben Cohen, age 19, Abe and Nadine's younger brother. He confirmed that he was very close with Nadine and had even worked at Mark's Body Shop as his summer job. He was home at the time of her murder on winter break from Miami University. He told detectives he called Nadine at her apartment at 12.45 on the day of her murder, and they spoke for a couple of minutes. After that, he went to the Jewish Community Center and spent the afternoon there. Detective Sherwood's notes say, quote, At this time, the officers feel that neither of the brothers are involved, end quote. So note the timeline here. Ben talked to his sister around 1245. She was alive and well. She picked up the mail sometime after about 115. At 120, she called Mark at work and told him Bob Murphy had called. By five o'clock, she was dead and had been for some time. This meshed with the pathologist's measurements, which placed her time of death at or before about 2.50 p.m. 
Given this timeline, there was a very weird report from witness Dorothy Harrell. She lived in the Breckenridge Village apartments about a mile away from the Willow Grove complex. Dorothy called in a tip to police. She told them that on Friday afternoon, January 11th, at approximately 3.15 p.m., she was on her way downstairs for a prayer meeting when she received a phone call. The party on the other end was an unidentified male. She would estimate his age as in the mid-twenties. He said repeatedly, Can you tell me what's going on by building number nine? There's been a woman stabbed. What's going on in building nine? A woman's been stabbed to death. She described the party as very excited. She told the caller that there was no building number nine in her complex, and he said, This is building nine at Willow Grove Apartments. Willow Grove was not where Dorothy lived. However, it was worth noting that Dorothy Harrell had previously lived at the Willow Grove Apartments and kept the same phone number when she moved. I love this quote from the police report. Quote, Miss Harrell seems to be a very alert elderly lady, and both Lieutenant Torpes and my own opinion is that it is a great possibility this phone call did take place. End quote. So if the detective's instincts are correct and Dorothy was right, someone had called her about the murder two hours before it was discovered. Detective Slay and I went back and forth over what the heck could have happened here. He points out that someone had tried to use the major's phone. Had the killer called a number listed in the complex to try to alert someone to the murder, not realizing that the owner of that number had moved away? Had someone else, not the killer, seen Nadine dead and wanted to report it but remain anonymous? To put it bluntly, we have no idea. I can't make heads or tails out of it, like much of this case. Detectives investigated every angle they could think of. Remember the shoe pints found in the apartment and outside some of the other complex buildings? Investigators contacted Mrs. Pat Hovey, the complex rental agent, to obtain a list of tenants in buildings 9, 12, and 13, as well as a list of the building custodians and members of a painting crew working on site. They were all checked for the suspected shoe prints, and their shoes were eliminated, and the newspaper boy tracked down. Detectives believed that the shoe was a Lazy Bones brand contender shoe. They contacted the manufacturer to see if they could obtain a list of local retailers who sold that shoe without any luck. Investigators even thought to check the Westlake County Memorial Hospital emergency room records for people treated for injuries to hands on the 11th or 12th. There's a list in the case file of the names of people for no reason other than they went to the ER in the 24 hours after the murders for treatment of a cut. It seems the detectives did this simply in hopes that perhaps the killer had cut himself stabbing Nadine 44 times and had sought medical attention. They were grasping at straws. Or were they? On the 19th, investigators thought they might have a breakthrough. Detective Lieutenant Collins's notes indicate that they spoke with the incinerator operator at the Willow Grove Apartments of Friedman Jackson. Friedman and his helper, Elmer Evans, told the detectives that when they were cleaning out the building number nine incinerator, Friedman saw a knife. Here's a quote from the report. A butcher knife, kitchen knife, was found, and this was taken and marked into evidence, end quote. Frustratingly, when they showed the knife to Mark, he wasn't able to definitively identify it as being one of the ones missing from his kitchen. To this day, we don't know if this was one of the knives taken by the killer or just a weird coincidence. Mark told detectives that he and Daniel and Nadine had recently sat for a series of photo portraits at Olin Mills Photo Studios at the Richmond Mall. The last sitting was on December 12th, and they had returned on the 27th to view the photos. 
Detectives looked into the photo studio to see whether any employees could have been stalking Nadine. They also learned that Nadine and Daniel had been enrolled at the Water Babies program at the YMCA in Willoughby. Detectives sought to speak with the other nine individuals enrolled in the class, who all turned out to be women who had never exchanged more than pleasantries with Nadine. Finally, detectives were inundated with reports from residents of Willow Grove who were receiving crank calls. Female residents reported the caller would breathe heavily and say things like, let me lick your tits. Thank goodness they finally invented caller ID, which has largely put a stop to this garbage. Now I just get dirty spam in my junk email. Okay, as far as suspects go, I'm going to touch on a few whose names remained in the case file for decades, even though their connection to the case was tangential at best. Ronald B. was a teenager whose family lived in the Willow Grove apartments, but had moved out literally within 36 hours of the murder. Ronald worked at the nearby McDonald's, but had been fired on January 6th. Police checked into him and discovered he had been arrested on a drug violation in his new town of Connaught, and was described as slow. Apparently, Ronald was deemed suspicious because he had moved away so quickly after the murder. He was interviewed by detectives, and they examined his shoe prints, and he wore size 13, the same as the killer. Ronald stayed on the list. Detective Lieutenant Collins spoke with Lake County Probation Officer Roger Cameron regarding a Randy Kleckler. Kleckler had been arrested for the stabbing of Elaine Spangler in February of 1978 in Willoughby. He was currently employed at Midwest Equipment, but had been sent home from work on the 11th because of inclement weather around 10 a.m. He had a history of unprovoked stabbing of a female and no alibi. Kleckler stayed on the list. A teen named Jack H. went on the list after police received reports that he had aroused suspicions of a resident of Willow Grove when he knocked on her door on Friday the 11th at lunchtime and asked her to alter his trousers. But he didn't have any pants with him and he was driving a yellow Oldsmobile Cutlass. This kid was interviewed and his shoes were all checked, but he had no criminal record and didn't really seem to have a motive. Nevertheless, he stayed on the list. A guy named Thomas Fife was interviewed. He had a criminal record of burglary and larceny and seems to have aroused police suspicions because of his breaking into apartments and his, quote, transvestite activities, end quote, noted in police notes. One guy who was looked at extensively was a Michael B., a barber at Fazio's Barbershop. Michael had a record for stabbing a neighbor and her child and several other assault cases using knives. He was also accused, but found not guilty of, breaking and entering and sexual assault on a 12-year-old girl in Beechwood. The knife crimes he committed had similarities to Nadine's murder, but there seemed to be no connection between Nadine and Fazio's or Michael, and he didn't own a car. Detectives did a lot of work on this suspect, even talking to his boss at the hair salon and a co-worker and interviewing him in the presence of his attorney, but they couldn't make a solid connection. A guy named F. Vyshinsky was the subject of a tip that made him of interest to police. Vyshinsky had started a new job at Specialty Transportation Services on January 7, 1980, four days before the murder. Specialty transportation was a service that drove shut-ins or elderly patients to medical treatment centers and doctor's offices. Police felt that maybe he had seen Nadine in one of his runs to or from Willow Grove. Vyshinsky was called into police by a co-worker because he had made some very strange comments about Nadine's murder. For example, 
He told people on his bus that the police knew who the killer was and that they had known on the second weekend after the murder. He also said his P.O. had instructed him to go to the bars and listen for information on the crime. Yes, he was on probation. Vyshinsky had been arrested in Euclid in January 1977 for an unprovoked stabbing outside a tavern. He was sentenced to 2 to 15 years, but those were suspended, so he got five years probation. He spent several months in a psychiatric hospital. And when police started looking at him as a result of this tip, he admitted that he had been at Willow Grove Apartments on January 11th, the day of the murder, for his job. Vyshinsky was a very interesting suspect, but again, there was no concrete connection that would permit charges. He stayed on the list. Okay, if there ever was a prime suspect in this case, it's this next guy, T. Kane. In April 1980, a T. Kane was arrested for a B&E at the Willow Grove apartment of a female resident, a Judy Conway. This guy cannot have been very smart to break into an apartment in a complex that had seen the murder of a female resident literally three months earlier. Of course, police hauled this guy in and questioned him about Nadine. Kane lived at the Willow Grove apartments and he was a pipe fitter for CEI in East Lake, Ohio. He claimed to have worked all day on January 11th, but he admitted that he had taken a significant lunch break. When interviewed, Kane denied having anything to do with Nadine's murder. He said his alibi was he was working all day and had gone to lunch with a buddy named Bob G., Kane's girlfriend, and another woman. They went to the Castle Lounge on Vine Street. But detectives observed that during the interview, Kane appeared extremely nervous. He was visibly perspiring on his face and under the armpits, and he had trouble maintaining eye contact while answering their questions. And the alibi, lunch with this Bob G. buddy, was the exact same one Kane gave on the day he burgled the Conway apartment. It was his go-to lie. Investigators found out that after the interview, Kane had called his buddy Bob G. and, quote, reminded him that they had had lunch on the 11th. Bob G. himself said he couldn't personally recall the date they had gone to this lunch. However, he did recall that whatever day they went to lunch, Kane mentioned in passing that a woman had been killed in an apartment near him. Of course, that meant that the lunch had not happened on the 11th, but afterwards. And Bob G. acknowledged that CEI employees often left early or took longer lunches than allowed, and the supervisors were clueless about this. But he said he didn't think Kane, whom he described as a timid sort, would do this type of crime. It turned out that Bob G. had met Kane for lunch that day, along with a female friend named Linda and Kane's girlfriend, Sherry. Sherry told detectives that that afternoon, she and Kane had gone to dinner at her parents' house around 5 p.m. He wasn't drinking that day that she was aware of, but she admitted that when he did drink, he was physically abusive. She said he had started drinking even more heavily after the incident with the B&E where he broke into the Conway's apartment. He told her about this incident, that he had been arrested after just walking into an apartment where the door was standing open. Yeah, right. Willoughby investigators asked Kane to come in for a polygraph, and he agreed. Detectives noted that again he was very nervous, and his answers showed deception when he responded to the questions, Did you kill Nadine Major? On January 11th, were you in Nadine Major's apartment? And do you know where the bloody clothes her killer wore are kept? Kane couldn't explain failing and was defensive and nervous. He refused to sign the form acknowledging his results. On April 5, 1980, Willoughby PD Detective Kenneth Izell and Lieutenant Collins traveled to Quantico, Virginia, to meet with legendary profiler John Douglas at the FBI Academy about the major case. 
Douglas examined all the photographs and physical evidence and prepared a profile of the killer. Douglas felt that Nadine and the offender were known to each other more than just casually. He believed that the slashing and stabbing of Nadine's face indicated a close personal relationship. Perhaps the offender felt that he was closer to the victim than the victim felt to the offender. Douglas predicted the offender was a white male in his mid-twenties, possibly between 24 and 30. He felt the offender might have been a voyeur, and Nadine's first-floor apartment subjected her to a peeping crime. The suspect had probably looked through the apartment windows in the past more than once. Douglas suspected that the offender had a history of explosive behavior or unprovoked assaults. He probably hadn't graduated high school, and if he had a military background, he had difficulty adjusting to the lifestyle. Importantly, Douglas felt that the offender either lived in the complex or worked in or very close to the complex. He was generally a loner and worked at a menial job. Douglas felt strongly that whoever was responsible for Nadine's murder probably took something from the scene to help him relive the incident. And he probably collected personal mementos of the case, including newspaper clippings and photographs in a scrapbook. And importantly, the offender likely exhibited a behavioral change after the murder. Izell and Collins presented their working theory that T. Kane was the offender they sought. Douglas agreed that he fit the profile. There was another reason that the investigators were interested in Kane. They discovered through reviewing his work history that he was working as a pipefitter at a Cleveland company in very close proximity to a murder that had occurred on March 18th of 1980. 19-year-old Sharon Skorwanski had been murdered in her home on Irwin Avenue in Cleveland. A neighbor found her lying on the living room floor having been stabbed to death and her throat slashed. Her six-week-old baby was found crying in a bedroom unscathed. Just like in Nadine's case, her husband had left for work around 7.30 that morning. Unlike in Nadine's case, however, a rear window to the apartment was broken and about $45 in cash was missing. The bloody knife believed to have been used in stabbing Sharon had been found several streets away, lying on the front lawn of a house. Her murder was unsolved. It was enough to prompt police to ask Kane to come in for a second polygraph. They got him to agree to this by dropping the B&E charges down to a misdemeanor. His answers showed deception, according to the polygrapher. When Kane was confronted with this, he became upset and conferred with his attorney. Although the detectives felt he was on the brink of confessing, his attorney advised him not to make any statements. Based on the double failed polygraph, Kane's record for breaking and entering at the apartment of a female and lying about his alibi, his living at Willowgrove, the odd coincidence of Sharon's similar murder in a location where he was known to be, and the fact that he fit John Douglas's profile, Kane became the Willoughby Police's prime suspect for the major homicide. They started surveilling Kane. They revisited his workplace and learned that he had been paid for eight hours on the 11th of January, but records were spotty. His girlfriend Sherry's parents said he was at their house after 5 p.m. that night, and they had discussed the murder. And he was named by a witness as someone who had hit on her in a way police considered inappropriate. This was teenager Carol B., a babysitter for the majors who lived in the complex. She had been in contact with police about the major case as someone who knew the family. But also, she had been in contact with police because she reported that she was receiving absolutely filthy and terrifying phone calls from an unidentified male caller, 
who said he was going to do all sorts of unspeakable sexual things to her and then cut her apart with a knife. He said he was going to cut her breasts off and hang them from his car mirror. This caller, essentially a stalker, was harassing Carol with repeated disturbing phone calls suggesting he was watching her, and Carol and her parents finally filed a complaint. I bring this up because detectives showed Carol a bunch of photos of men they were looking at in the case file, since, as the major's babysitter, they thought she might have seen one of them. And she had. Kane. He had hit on her at the complex pool, telling her that he was always watching out for her, hoping she would be there. Kane was a lecherous creep who came on to teenage girls, among other things. And there was more. He drove a yellow Datsun. Investigators really leaned into John Douglas's prediction that Kane, if he were guilty, would exhibit a shift in personality and behavior after the murder if he'd done it. His girlfriend Sherry had told them that his drinking really ramped up around this time, and Kane kept screwing up over the coming years. He violated his probation, kept losing his job, lost his apartment, and was reported for ogling women in his new apartment complex. His girlfriend left him, and he was arrested in February 1984 for domestic violence, in July 84 for fighting and cocaine possession, for disorderly and DUI in New York in June of 87, in August 87 for public drunkenness, and in May 2003 for compelling prostitution. In June of 1980, Kane moved out of the Willow Grove complex and investigators entered his vacant apartment. They found dried blood on a window ledge and three drops in a closet. They collected samples and squirreled them away for testing. As I was reading the hundreds of pages in the police files of the major case, I noted that the police never had a viable suspect who was someone in Nadine's life. Almost all of the men who are named in the case file that police talked to, investigated, interviewed, or looked at were strangers to her, as far as we know. They came to the attention of investigators through tips, arrest records for similar crimes, because they drove a yellow car, because they worked in the area, because they wore athletic shoes, or even just because they acted shady. A sketchy guy who repaired the washing machines at the complex. A guy calling the female residents and telling them he was aiming a pistol at them through the window and they needed to strip ASAP. Random men who had stabbed anyone ever. Peepers, flashers, and so on. The Willoughby investigators really pulled out all the stops, pursuing leads that, as I read about them, seemed almost absurdly unlikely. They diligently followed up on lead after lead, only to be shot down time after time. For example, one guy was hauled in for questioning because a detective had happened on a girly magazine the guy had thrown out in which he had defaced all the photos of women with a bleed. Nadine's case was entered into VICAP in 1991. Detectives were alerted to cases across the nation that resembled hers such as the June 1981 murder of Felissa Kamenoff in her New York City apartment. Felissa was stabbed numerous times and found with a butcher knife sticking out of her chest. Her killer cut himself and left a blood trail as he fled the scene. Her case remains unsolved, and it had no connections to Nadine's. In April 1996, a new round of testing was conducted on items and evidence in Nadine's case. The following items were sent to the Lake County Crime Lab. Nadine's blouse, the knife, the blue slippers she was wearing, the piece of the metal folding knife, the bloody phone, the newspaper clipping which had a fingerprint on it, the kitchen drawer, and the tiles. The file says, quote, On April 23, 1996, evidence from the Nadine major homicide was resubmitted to the Lake County Regional Forensic Lab. 
It was felt, with the advancements of technology and testing procedures, that it warranted another effort to obtain usable evidence. Serologist Linda Erdi agreed to attempt further testing, end quote. Well, that testing paid off. The crime lab developed a single-source male DNA profile from a bloodstain on Nadine's cream blouse. This was the first time that investigators had confirmation that the suspect had been injured during the attack and dripped blood on Nadine as he stabbed her. Now that they had the suspect's DNA profile, it was entered into CODIS. And as you can guess, because I'm covering this case on my show about forensic genealogy, there were no hits. Linda Erdai was asked to test the profile against the blood drip on the closet floor, which had been collected from T. Kane's apartment in 1980. It was not consistent. But they started to surveil Kane anyway. Of course, the blood drip on his apartment floor could have been anyone's. It could have belonged to his girlfriend, Sherry, or someone else. So they decided to surveil Kane and conduct a surreptitious DNA grab. This is the earliest instance I've come across of this type of evidence gathering, August 1996, although the Supreme Court ruled that warrantless collection of garbage is not prohibited by the Fourth Amendment several years earlier, in 1988. Anyway, that month in August 96, a Willoughby Police Department detective and Chief Straub observed Kane at the Whiskey River Tavern in Cleveland. They watched him smoking a cool, light cigarette. As he prepared to leave, he put the cigarette into an ashtray. As soon as he walked out the door, Chief Straub snagged it and placed it into an evidence bag. It was dispatched to the Lake County Crime Lab. Testing failed to detect a sufficient number of cells for DNA analysis. Remember, back then they needed a much larger sample than they do now, when analysts need just a few cells. A second cigarette butt grab later that same month also failed to yield results. Finally, on September 3, 1996, they went for a whole bag of trash outside Kane's house. They removed three bags of garbage and returned them to the Willoughby PD, where Detective Austin and serologist Linda Erdai went through the bags and removed six Lipton Brew iced tea bottles, 15 cigarette butts, seven popsicle sticks, five Kleenex, one Miller Lite draft beer can, one Pepsi bottle, a Bartles and James bottle, a piece of used gum, and two straws. Here is the report, quote, On September 9, 1996, reporting officers spoke with Linda Erdai in regards to tested items. She advised that she had obtained samples suitable for comparison from the gum, straws, Kleenex, and bottles. She stated she was able to contain two different DNAs, one of which had the same markers as the tested blood spot from Kane's apartment. This would most probably be that of Thomas Kane. Neither of the two DNAs were close to that of the sample lifted from Nadine Major's clothing. While this does not eliminate Kane as a suspect, the probability factor is substantially low. End quote. Well, that was that. But they really wanted to be 100% sure. So, after Kane's 2003 arrest for compelling prostitution in Painesville, Willoughby authorities requested that Kane submit to voluntary DNA testing. They made it worth his while by agreeing to reduce the charges he was facing. Kane agreed, and the samples were obtained on June 3, 2003. They were sent to the Lake County Forensic Lab for testing, and surprisingly, Kane was ruled out. Meanwhile, the Sharon Skowanski case, which had such eerie parallels to Nadine's, and Kane was suspected by the WPD of being involved in, was solved when Carl E. Spencer, age 24, was convicted of her murder. Carl's DNA profile was entered into CODIS, and there was no hit to the major case. 
he didn't kill Nadine either. In conjunction with the 1996 testing, there was a renewed push to work the major case. In November of 1996, Willoughby detectives met with Mark Major and Ben Cohen and their respective wives. Mark had remarried after meeting his new wife at a singles dance nearly two years after Nadine's murder. The purpose of the meeting was for the investigators to update the family on Nadine's case status and apprise them of the new DNA evidence, that they had a male's DNA from Nadine's blouse. Nadine's father wasn't at the meeting. He had passed away in 1992. And the file indicates that Nadine's mom would not be expected to attend a meeting with law enforcement. Quote, she had been unable to accept Nadine's death and breaks down any time anyone brings up her name. The family was updated and Ben and Mark gave voluntary DNA samples for elimination purposes. Investigators also asked Mark to obtain his son Danny's DNA, and he said he would do so. But he didn't want to alert Danny so as not to put him through any unnecessary anguish. For a brief moment, I wondered to myself why they wanted Danny's DNA since he was only eight months old at the time. But then I realized that, of course, they needed to be sure that it was not his male DNA that was found on his mother's blouse. Maybe he'd had a bloody nose or fallen down. If it was his blood and not the perps, the investigators were chasing their tails. Detectives also met with Nadine's brother Abe separately that week because he and Ben were still estranged, although Abe had mended fences with his own father and helped take care of him in the last years of his life. Abe also gave a DNA sample. Mark's brother Paul Major and his wife Clarice also came in for an interview. Paul gave a DNA sample, and the couple told the investigators about a friend of theirs and Mark and Nadine's, a Jay Ashdown. They said Ashdown acted weird at the funeral, refusing to come inside, and had a bandaged cut on his hand that he tried to hide. They had reported these suspicions to the Willoughby PD back in 1980, but 1997 investigators couldn't find any record of this. They brought Ashdown in for an interview in February 97, and he said he'd never been spoken to. He was aware in 1980 that he could have attracted the attention of police because he had a cut on his hand that he'd gotten at work. As for why he had chosen to stand outside of the funeral, he said he was a Roman Catholic and felt very uneasy with the rituals of Orthodox Jews, so he tried to stand out of the way of the activities. He gave a DNA sample, and testing ruled him out as well. Testing by the Lake County Regional Crime Lab was definitive. Mark Major, Paul Major, Abe Cohen, Ben Cohen, and Daniel Major all were eliminated as the donor of the blood on Nadine's clothing. In November of 1996, Chief Straub met with Nancy Brown, a co-worker of Nadine's from Society Bank, who had never been interviewed. Nancy said she and Nadine were very close. In fact, she was the one who threw Nadine a wedding shower on March 23rd of 1977. Nancy said that Nadine was sort of naive and overly friendly and didn't realize that her demeanor with male customers could be construed as flirting. But as far as Nancy knew, Nadine never had any problems with ex-boyfriends or anyone else. This quote from the file, Nancy could offer no suspects and it is her opinion that Nadine probably attracted a weirdo due to her naive and trusting attitude to others. I was interested to read a 2002 letter from the Ohio Attorney General to the WPD about a program called the New Hope Initiative. The report says the New Hope Initiative is a program seeking to collect untested, no-suspect DNA cases from law enforcement agencies to help solve unsolved crimes. The letter states, 
Having recently created a DNA database with the ability to access profiles from across the country, this program has great potential to match a perpetrator with the crime using this new DNA technology. Of course, this was referencing CODIS. The purpose of the initiative was to encourage police forces to submit untested evidence from their evidence lockers for testing using modern techniques. The Attorney General was incentivizing the testing by providing a stipend of $100 per case for testing purposes, up to a maximum of 250 cases per agency. The letter goes on to describe the new DNA database as the perfect tool to create leads in old cases with no suspects by connecting them with other cases and suspects around the country. It's true that CODIS has been an incredibly successful crime-solving tool, but of course, the database is only as good as the profiles entered into it. If no matching profile exists in CODIS, investigators are back to square one. This is the end of part one. Part two is available right now.